Should you live pure? Choosing your neighborhood to lower your risk of heart disease. Is inflammation the final common pathway for heart disease? And treating patients that have a stent and atrial fibrillation. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins, posted on September 1st, 2017. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins, president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, and dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, we have to tell everyone, gosh, it's the European Conference on Cardiology this week, so we have a disproportionate number of things that are relative to heart disease. So why don't we start with the first one I served up as Should You Live Pure? That's the acronym for a study that was published in The Lancet, but also presented at that conference. PURE is called the Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiology Study. It's a pretty ambitious study. It involved over 200 investigators who collected data on more than 135,000 individuals from 18 countries across five different continents for over seven years. This particular study actually is our largest prospective observational study to assess the association of various nutrients and these were assessed by frequent questionnaires with the risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality in both low and middle income populations. So they correlated nutrition with heart disease. Now on the first blush, you'd like to kind of yawn and say, well, we know everything there is to know about nutrition and heart disease. But here's the really interesting finding. The Pure Team reports that higher intake of fats, and that includes saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, and total polyunsaturated fats, all these fats and animal protein were each associated with a lower mortality, whereas carbohydrate intake was associated with an increased mortality. It really goes against everything we've been taught. So fascinating. So as we're always talking about also, what's the biological plausibility for this particular observation? Okay, the story is not just in fat alone. In many of these low or middle income populations, they also lack essential micronutrients. So it may be that this source of food actually contains micronutrients they would otherwise be deficient in. So one of the things these investigators need to do is they need to examine their blood samples to see whether this benefit was restricted to certain populations. The other thing to remember is we know that increased carbohydrates, it increases your triglycerides, it raises your LDL cholesterol and lowers your HDL. Those are all bad. There's still a lot more investigation, but I can tell you this really goes against everything we've been taught for the last 20 years with regard to fat intake. The other thing I'm wondering about with regard to low and middle income folks is the sedentary lifestyle aspect. Are these people more physically active also than people of higher incomes? Well, this particular study doesn't address that, but other studies suggest that is indeed the case. But Elizabeth, you would think that if fats were harmful, they would be harmful across all individuals, not only sedentary, but active individuals as well. That's obviously not the case in the PURE study. I guess then the question that I asked is, should you live pure? And what's your answer to that? I think we need to take a look at this again. It does confirm that high carbohydrates, and in this particular study, probably refined carbohydrates are harmful. Okay, that's the blog issue for this week. Let's turn now to the New England Journal of Medicine. There's a new monoclonal antibody out there, and it reduces inflammation. And while it's at it, it also seems to reduce cardiovascular outcomes. Yeah, is this our new final common or our confirmed final common pathway? 
All right, so this antibody you're referring to is called canakinumab. Because it's an anti-inflammatory antibody, it attacks specific proteins in a pathway that causes inflammation. It's been used for rheumatologic diseases very successfully. It's administered through an injection. Now, we know many of the risk factors for heart disease. There's good evidence that inflammation also plays a role. And we've not had any medications that target only inflammation. What about aspirin? Well, it's an anti-inflammatory, but it has antiplatelet abilities. Well, what about statins? Were they anti-inflammatory, but they lower LDL cholesterol? To see whether reducing inflammation could lower the risk of cardiovascular disease. And over 10,000 individuals with a previous heart attack and evidence of inflammation, they had a high C-reactive protein. They were administered canakinumab by injection every three months or placebo and followed over the course of four years. Canakinumab did in fact lower inflammation. It lowered C-reactive protein. It did not change cholesterol at all, but it lowered the risk of having an adverse cardiac event or death by 15%. This provides excellent evidence that actually inflammation does contribute to heart disease and reducing inflammation reduces the risk of heart attacks, strokes, and death. Something, of course, that we've been circling around for a very long time, the issue or the idea that inflammation is somehow fundamentally involved in the development. However, let's go back to this particular agent. It has a number of disadvantages. The injectable nature, of course, is one of them. The other is the expense. Absolutely. When it's used on a monthly basis for treating arthritis, it costs about 200000 a year. So if this is given just every three months, you can cut that cost down substantially to about 80000 That's still not cost effective. There are some untoward side effects. It lowers platelet counts. It doubled the risk of dying of sepsis. Now, that risk was pretty low, but it still increases the risk of having serious infectious complications. I wouldn't advocate that this should be routine therapy until we get the cost down and until we've more fully investigated what are the long-term adverse effects. Absolutely. In the New England Journal of Medicine, also that totally complicated one that you served up, gosh, should I use two agents or three agents with regard to anticoagulation in a very prescribed population of people? Very prescribed, but these two conditions happen quite often. People that have coronary artery disease and have a stent placed because of it oftentimes have irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. If a person has a stent, they're put on antiplatelet agents, usually aspirin plus another one that's dual antiplatelet therapy. That prevents heart disease. But to prevent strokes, you actually need a blood thinner, which is different. Oftentimes, warfarin or Coumadin is used or one of these newer agents. The trouble is, for people that have both conditions, if you combine all three therapies, it increases the risk of bleeding substantially. So the question is, instead of using three agents, use only two. That's what this study did. They took over 2,700 patients that had a stent and atrial fibrillation. Some of them received routine triple therapy. The other group received just one antiplatelet agent and one of the newer anticoagulants, dabigatran. And what they discovered was using just two agents reduced the risk of bleeding by 25 to 50%, but it did not increase the risk of having a stroke as a result of atrial fibrillation. And it sounds to me like a slight simplification of the care routine, which is always a good thing. Yep. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up, there are literally millions of individuals across the world that end up with atrial fibrillation and coronary artery disease. So I'd like to get this information out to them as soon as possible. Okay. Finally, let us turn to Annals of Internal Medicine, yet another heart-related study. This one you suggested, gosh, should you pick your neighborhood in order to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease? 
I wish it was quite that simple. You know, I was unaware that if you're an American, if you reach the age of 50, your earnings significantly affect your risk of dying of heart disease. If you compare the lowest decile of career earnings versus the highest, the individuals in the lower decile live a decade shorter than those in the upper decile. That suggests that there's something other than just routine cardiovascular risk factors that contribute to this. The Cleveland Clinic looked at individuals surrounding them that they were treating. They looked at routine risk predictors and they applied these to individuals all around the state. How good does this risk model do? And secondly, does the neighborhood or the socioeconomic status affect the risk of cardiovascular disease? And that's important because that's not in any of the risk models. Over the course of five years, the routine risk model substantially underestimated the risk of cardiovascular disease in poor people. It did it fine in those that lived in affluent neighborhoods. And in fact, when they looked at the variation in the risk of dying of heart disease, 32% of that was attributable to the neighborhood, only 10% of that due to differences in the risk model. That means being in a low socioeconomic status neighborhood was three times better predictor than the routine risk model. So we've been getting it wrong, and of course, that says a lot about intervention. Absolutely. What this says is that you can't separate the risk model from the ecology that is where the patient lives. That determines things like whether they're able to exercise, whether they have healthy food choices. It may determine their access to care. So this ends up being an extremely important predictor of cardiovascular disease that's not a part of the routine risk model. I'm going to take it a step further, Elizabeth is as a physician or a healthcare provider, our reimbursement in the future is gonna be tied to the quality of care we deliver. And it certainly does not account for the socioeconomic status that's so important in hospitals like mine that sits in a low income area. There's a lot of work to do on this. And I would suggest to you that it's gonna to need to be culturally sensitive because an assessment of that particular risk factor or its identification to the patient could be something that might be hard for them to take. Absolutely, Elizabeth. You know, I'm in an area that's 80% Hispanic, and the culture here is very different than the culture in inner city Cleveland, for example. So your point's very well taken. Again, it tells us that our routine risk models, not really as good as we'd like for them to be. And they have to take into status where people live and their surroundings. Okay. On that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well. <laughs>